Good to have you here. I'm going to invite you to go to the book of Acts, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 13 of Acts, chapter 2. A uh, couple of things I want to mention. Uh, Scott mentioned the men's retreat, and we actually had a waiting list, a turnaway list this year. We had so many guys want to go. Um, we had a competition among hymn leaders, and I am sad that we have eight different hymn community groups, young married community groups. Unfortunately, um, Jim Painter's group somehow won. Yeah. However, I did notice that one of the members that was at the men's retreat is here this morning cheering for himself. And so I believe we will take away your vote, your presence, and I'm sure another group won. Okay. Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at in a moment. I think for most of us, um, this has been a week that we have been pretty glued to the international news, right? And I sent out a musings, uh, as I usually do on Friday, a newsletter, and I have been asking God to know how to pray for Ukraine, as Russia as well, um, and for the people of Ukraine. And I had gone to different sites of ministries that have missionaries in Ukraine to just get a feel of what was going on there. I just doing my own study of the history of Ukraine and the conflict with Russia, <clears throat> excuse me, eventually just put together my own thoughts as to how to pray. And it's a prayer I've been continually praying. It's a prayer that I put in the, um, in the musings Friday. And even though it's a written prayer, it has become really my heart's prayer. And so this morning, I'd like to just pray it over us this morning as we pray for uh, what's going on in our world. Let's pray. God, we see a tyrant at work, and our hearts cry for you to stop him. We see innocent people whose countryside and cities are invaded, and we cry for their protection. We see war and we cry for peace. We see our Christian brothers and sisters in the eye of the storm and we for cry for you to encourage them, guide them, protect them. We see world leaders of the free world and we pray for courage and unity and wisdom in their response. And Father, we know there is so much more we do not see, so much that you are purposing to do even in this seemingly tragic thing so we cry for you to exalt yourself, make your name known, expand your kingdom, proclaim your gospel, build your church. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to join me this morning in the book of Acts chapter 2. I'd like to read it, and uh, then we're going to begin our study this morning. If you are newer here to FCC, um, we are in a series, the early part of our series, um, The Spirit at Work to the Ends of the Earth is the theme we believe is the book of Acts. We have, you'll probably see people around you, they have a little black, skinny-looking Bible. It's, it actually is the Bible, but it's not the whole Bible. Many people are using a scripture journal of the book of Acts. It has the scripture on one page and on the opposite page. There is a room for notes. If you are a note taker, I invite you to do that. Uh, if you're a doodler and that helps you keep pay attention, 
doodle away. Okay. All right. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and following. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongue the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They're filled with new wine. Father, we ask you to speak into our lives truth this morning. Lord, this earth-shattering, world-changing event As we begin to reflect on it today, God, I I pray that we would be stunned with the beauty of the gospel, that we'd be drawn again to live our lives in dependence on the one who came among your people centuries ago to empower us, to change us, that your name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. We come today to that event in the book of Acts that really is the central moment and the beginning of everything. It is when the explosion of Pentecost took place. Now, it is an event that Jesus had been referring to throughout his ministry. As a matter of fact, before he even began his public ministry, John the Baptist had talked about this in Luke chapter 3, in Luke chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. John the Baptist answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. In the end of Luke, in the end of his gospel in chapter 24, verse 49, Luke said it this way, Jesus is speaking as he is ascending to heaven, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This is the moment that he is referring to, this event that is taking place here in Jerusalem, where the Spirit of God is poured out upon the followers, those that have embraced Christ as Lord and Master. And there's a couple of things just I want to say by way of of context. We're not sure where this happened. It talks about, in verse 1, the place. It talks about, in verse 2, the house. But the word house actually can can be used in a variety of ways. It was either in uh, the upper room where they had been staying or perhaps, and where I tend to think, it took place in one of the 
rooms or hallways of the temple, which were also could be called certainly a place, but also could be called a house, a location. The reason I think it probably took place there is the fact that as they came out of their meeting, there were all kinds of people around them that had heard the noise that had been going on as the Spirit came upon them. But we're not sure where it happened, but we are sure when it happened, where it's described when the day of Pentecost came. Now, there are three religious festivals in Israel's annual calendar that every male was required to attend. Uh, That's put back in in the books of the Torah, Numbers and Deuteronomy, and every Jewish man had to travel. No matter how far he was away, he had to come and to Jerusalem for this festival. Usually, they brought their families. The three events were Passover, which culminated with one day of Passover, then went into the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that was basically a time usually in April celebrating God's rescue from the, of the Israelites from uh, the Egyptians in Egypt. The Feast of Pentecost, or weeks, took place in May or June, and it was the celebration of God's giving the law to Moses on the mountain and actually the establishment of, of Israel now as a nation before God. That took place in Mar- May or April, May or, or June, I mean. Then there was the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, usually October, celebrating God's provision for the nation as they spent 40 years in the wilderness living in tents. So they celebrated, actually made these little tent-like um, tabernacle structures, usually out of branches and stuff, and that's what they stayed at in Jerusalem. This was one of those pilgrimage feasts. There are times later in the book of Acts, we'll, we'll see Paul saying, I want to get back to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. It was, a, it was a big deal. It was one of the annual calendar events. And so there are people from all over the world that have identified with, with, with uh, Judaism who have become Jews, Jewish proselytes, they're called, who have now come to celebrate Pentecost. We're going to look at this uh, event with three sermons. Today, we're going to talk about the event itself in verses 14 to 41. Next time, the sermon that Peter presents, the first sermon of the, of the new era of the church, and then verse 42 to 46, the impact that it all had upon the believers as the life of the church, this new gathering of people, begins to be described. In verse 13, of the passage I read this morning, and this is where I want to land as, an, as our emphasis, it says, excuse me, it says, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Well, that's my question this morning. What does this mean? What is this event saying to us? And I would say three things, and this is our outline this morning. There is power from the outside. There is power that impacts the inside, and there is power available without sides. Power from the outside. We read about it in verse 1 to 3, two things that are described here, two descriptions of this power that is being poured out upon uh, the gathering of of, uh, followers of Christ here. 
And first of that is there is a rushing, mighty wind. A few years ago, we were up in northern Michigan where uh, we go because that's where Marion is from. And we were there and there were words that a, basically a tornado had come through, violent winds. And so their house is sort of built into the side of a hill a little bit. So we went down into the, the bottom floor and you heard this amazing wind just surging. We came out to find, and it was just fairly localized where we were, 60-foot trees were lying. There were some across the driveway of their 100-yard their driveway up to the house. All throughout the area, they had come down. When we heard that wind, there was one word that goes through your mind. Power. This is a sound of power. He then describes the event as one that is tongues of fire. Now, the people hear the wind, and then they hear the uh, disciples of Jesus as they come out and speak to them in their own languages, but apparently they don't see the fire come down. That happened in the room, wherever that was, whether it was an upper room in Jerusalem somewhere or it was in the temple in one of the, one of the, one of the separate rooms. But they come out, and if, why, why is that? I mean, I wonder if, if the, the symbolism was obviously for the followers of Christ because fire was, was manifested with the powerful presence of God. His Shekinah glory is, is a pillar of fire at night. And there is this picture of, of a visual that to them must have been very prominent, but, but I wondered why the other people didn't see it. I wonder if it would be sort of weird them out. Like, I mean, divided tongues coming down in the shape of fire. Maybe it's too distracting. It, 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 visuals can be distracting. I was thinking about that this morning, uh, actually earlier in the week, when we found out that Virtually everybody that's a regular announcer was going to be on the men's retreat, and we sucked Jared into doing the intro. I went to the room where he was actually taping with Ben Painter. Ben Painter had him on camera, and I'm looking in the window, and uh, they stopped, and I went out. I was trying to get his attention to mess him up while he was taping, but then I went in, and I said, wait, are you taping with that red baseball cap on for Sunday morning? And he said, yeah. I said, ah, it's your... I think it's going to be, I hope I came across not worse than this, but um, I said, I, I think it's going to be distracting. And he said, well, let me show you why I'm wearing the red baseball cap. And he took his hat off and he had a hairdo that you can be grateful you did not see. And at that moment, I said, Capitus. Visuals can be distracting. Maybe that's why. He didn't have the, the, the tongues be seen by the people, but they sure heard it. They sensed the power. What we find in this passage is that there is a power from the outside that is taking place. It is not eternal. Internal. It came down from heaven. The whole view of life that is put forth in this passage puts us on collision course with the view of life of the world. You see, the culture says the opposite. 
it says, the power is inside. The problem is out there. This passage reminds us, as the New Testament will do a thousand times, that the scriptural perspective is this of living the Christian life. The power comes from without because the problem is in here. St. Augustine, in the 4th century A.D., made a statement. It's a Latin phrase. In curvitas and say, Martin Luther picked up on the same phrase in his uh, writings, and the phrase actually means to be curved in upon yourself. The idea is we are the ultimate problem. We are the ones that need a power from outside. Culture tells us the problem's out there. It's your family background. It's you, you're, the, you're the wrong people group. It's, it's, you've been wronged. You, you haven't got a fair shake. It's this, it's this, it's, it's outside. But we're always reminded, as Pentecost reminds us, the power has to come from without because we are curved in on ourselves. We are, by nature, because of the fall, self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered. What comes out of our lives is not an orientation towards a mission to serve and love and to, to, to go towards other nations. No, our orientation is to protect ourselves, to serve ourselves. We need a power from the outside. And this power comes as the new era is introduced through the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. The problem ultimately is not out there. The problem is in here. Years ago, there was a book called, written called The Coral Sea. It was a book um, that was basically this beautiful story about a guy named Ralph and Jack. They were boys and there were other boys as well. Those were the two primary ones. And they were on a deserted island. They'd been shipwrecked. And, and the story is of these young boys growing up and, and this utopian society they developed. And really, the, uh, they got along. They built a beautiful uh, community. And the only problem they really had was actually the, 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 the vicious native savages from another island that every now and then they had to watch out for. A number of years later, in 1954, another book was written by a man named William Golding. William Golding wrote a book that many of you read that has been called by Time Magazine recently one of the top 100 books that have been written since, 19, since World War I, basically, 1919. William Golding entitled his book, The Lord of the Flies. He took as his two main characters two young boys that were deserted on an island, and their names were Ralph and Jack. It was an anti-message of the Coral Sea. It was, and the brilliance of the Lord of the Rings, even though it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a heavy story, it is a brilliant analysis of the heart of people. It's a picture, rather than presenting this wonderful, nirvanic, utopian society of harmony and oneness, 
It says the problems are not only with the savages out there. The problems are in here. In the story of Lord of the Rings, Ralph and Jack are two strong-minded individuals. There end up being conflict. There's all kinds of things that go on. There's even a boy that's murdered and in a frenzied uh, nighttime thing. And it's, 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 a, it's a picture that reminds us that the controlling force in our lives, internally, in us, is it, we're curved in. We're, we're looking for us. We need power from without. And that's what happened at Pentecost. It's interesting, one of the boys, little Simon in Lord of the Rings, he's one of the most reflective. He's not a main character, but whenever he talks, he seems a little bit more reflective, a little more sensitive and processing than the other guys. In one interesting statement of the book, they keep blaming the beast that's out there. You know, that's what we got to do this. And, and it's used by the strong-minded guys to say, we got to do this. You got to follow us because the beast that's out there. And in one statement, he actually makes this statement. Maybe there's a beast. Maybe it's only us. Maybe we are the beast. There's power needed from outside. We also find here it is power that impacts the inside. Verse 4 says this, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is going to be a continual refrain in the book of Acts. It's going to constantly talk about they were filled with the Spirit, and, and many of the times it, it, it empowers them to speak boldly for Christ. But there are other passages talking about they're filled, and, 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 and it impacts their lives individually. There's various things that take place. So what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Because obviously, even though the baptism of the Spirit was a one-time event that a person has when they're placed into the body of Christ, the filling of the Spirit is a, a, a continually happening event. So what does it mean to be filled by the Spirit? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells us, he says this, don't be filled, don't be drunk by wine, but, literally, but instead be filled by the Spirit. Well, what happens when you're, you're drunk? You're brought under the complete influence of alcohol. Being filled by the Spirit means that we are brought under the influence of the Spirit of God. It's striking in this passage that the overwhelming majority of people down in verse 12 and 13 look on and they say, this is stunning. That was amazing. Uh, the word amazed keeps being repeated in this passage. And they said, what does this mean? A handful of characters who didn't want to have to deal with it, they just basically said, oh, they're just drunk. They're under the influence of alcohol. Well, they were under the influence, but not of alcohol. They were under the influence of the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, it tells us that the three fruits of being filled by the Spirit in both passages is always the same. Number one, there is a spirit of gratitude. There is thanksgiving. There's, there's a peace that settles in our heart with a spirit of contentment and, 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 and gratefulness. Secondly, it says there is a joy. It says they're, they're making melody in their hearts. They're singing. There's, there's a joyousness about individuals filled by the Spirit. And the last thing it says in both passages that they are, they are yielding or submitting to others. They're looking out for other peoples. There's love. 
There's peace and there's joy and there's love. There is this exuberant joy that is sensed among these people as the Spirit of God is filling them. There is power without, but it is power that influences and impacts within. This is the picture of Pentecost for us. But look at what happens here as we look at this passage. We are told what changes them in verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. This is a great statement. What are the mighty works of God? I mean, here's this, here's this scene, right? And here they are, and they're all talking in foreign languages, and, and all of a sudden I'm talking Arabic or whatever they, whatever they, I'm trying to think what languages actually were represented there. And, and so they're speaking the language, and so that group of people comes up, wait, they're talking my, they're talking my language. So they gather there, and then there's others over here, and there's others over here. And what are they speaking? I mean, what are they talking about? What are they telling people? You know, we're really grateful you came to our service this morning. No, that's not what they're telling. What are they saying? The mighty works of God. What's that mean? There's one other time that's used in the New Testament, I believe, by intent. It's used in Luke chapter 19, where Jesus is on his way down the Mount of Olives to come for the triumphant entry. And it says, here's here's what it says in chapter 19, verse 37 of Luke. On the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples, that's Jesus, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The Pharisees then grabbed Jesus and they say, tell your disciples to stop saying this stuff. You remember what he says? If they stop talking, the very rocks of the ground are going to start talking. They're going to be proclaiming the mighty works of Jesus. What were the disciples saying here at Pentecost? They're proclaiming the mighty works of Christ. They're talking about what he's done in his life. They're talking about the the, the cross that he's done, the resurrection, the ascension to heaven. They're proclaiming the work of Jesus to people in their own tongues and in their own languages. The new era of the Spirit has begun. Empowering lives from the inside out to proclaim by life and message the mighty works of Christ. The old hymn, This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. This is what these guys were proclaiming as they spoke in the languages of the people that had traveled all over the world to come to Pentecost. You need to know my Christ. You need to know his mighty works. You need to know what he's willing to do in the lives of people. What we are experiencing, peace and joy and love that are flowing out of our lives as we are brought under the influence of his spirit. 
founded in the mighty works of Christ. Christianity, at its very core, says the problem is within. We need a power from without. And when that power from without comes, it brings a power within that changes, that brings us under the influence of Christ's own Spirit. But there's a third thing we find. This power is available without sides. There's no walls to it. There's no restrictions to it. There's no limitations to where it will go and to whom it will speak. In verses 5 through 13, we hear about the people that are there. People from all over the known world, they start first in, in, the, in the litany of nations and people groups. They start in the east. It's out in the Persian Empire in that way. Then it travels. It goes through Judea. It hits up into what we would call modern-day Turkey. Then it goes down to northern Africa and then eventually goes as far as the, east, the western borders of the Roman Empire and Rome itself. Many of these people that have come are Gentile proselytes who have entered Judaism. The difference that is taking place on the, on, on, on the day of Pentecost is, is not that other people could join the people of God. The difference is the people of God are, no, are now going out to embrace everyone to be a part. There were proselytes that could join Israel, but now they are all going forth in a new enterprise where Jew and Gentile have become one and there is now one people of God of every tongue and tribe and people group. And the fact that they are speaking to them in their own tongues can't be overstated. It's amazing if you just listen at the response. Verse 6, it says the people, they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? In verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does it mean? Virtually all... Um, Church historians and church fathers and commentators today believe that what happened at Pentecost is a look back to the Tower of Babel. That there was a day, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, where people were trying to build a tower to God, and everybody on earth spoke the same language at that time. They were all united in rebellion against God and in pride were saying, we're going to build a building all the way up to the presence of God. That's another way of saying, we're, we're going to be like God. We'll be where, we, where he is. We'll do what he does. We'll, we'll be our own gods. God then causes the human languages to be confused, and the nations were scattered. Pentecost is a deliberate and dramatic reversal of the curse of, of Babel. There, human language is confused, and the nations scattered. At Pentecost, the language bar barrier was supernaturally overcome as a sign that the nations would now be gathered together in Christ into a multinational, multiracial, multilingual kingdom. There is no language or culture to whom the gospel belongs. None to whom the gospel is given 
priority. Tim Keller put me on to uh, uh, a book. I, ha- I-, I read it before, and I- I- in preparation for this sermon, I got it out again. And the book is written by a man named Lamont Sinai, and it is called Whose Religion is Christianity? And in the book, and it's a fascinating read, it's basically he's being questioned by a, a secular um, questioner, a reporter, and it's his giving all these, these answers. And basically what he is saying in the book is he's comparing Christianity from all other religions. And he, one of the things he talks about, and he's an African, he's talking about is the difference of Christianity from Islam. Muslims believe that the Quran cannot be translated. And you might immediately say, well, I, I've seen Qurans that are in English. And it's true, I, I actually have one. But in the cover, there is always, or in the, it just inside the cover on, on the homepage, there is always a statement that says something like, this is um, an English explanation or some word like that. They believe that the Quran is always and only in Arabic. Allah speaks in Arabic. It must be heard in Arabic, ultimately. There is a unified Islamic culture, and, and Lamed Sinai is talking about this. There's a, a, a unified Islamic culture around the world where, where all Islamic uh, people groups are basically to look like worldwide Islam. Ultimately, the goal is that nationally, the country will look like an Islamic country, that it all looks the same. There are same, the same practices, the same behaviors, the, the same ways that they operate, patterns and external rules. Its intention is to say, have the same practice in every part of the culture. It is to be its own culture. Christianity is more culturally diverse than any religion on earth. It honors every culture. It presents principles of Jesus' kingdom, but if African, you don't become European in the way you look, and there are principles you follow. If you're Pakistani, you don't become an American church in the way you need to look and the music that you use. The perspectives that your own cultural background is real Christianity is a sham. It's no more viable than any other cultural manifestation if they are following biblical principles. God allows, God affirms, God values the mighty works of God being declared in the, own, in the, in the language of the people themselves. One of the statements I love that Lemons and I says in this, he says, Christians may be excused for feeling confused about what language Jesus spoke. How many of you know what language Jesus spoke? If I said, did he speak Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic? Don't, I, I'm sorry, this is terrible, dude. Anyway, whether you knew or not, now you know it was Aramaic. That would have been the normal thing. But how many of you have even know what Aramaic is? Well, he's saying Christians may be excused for feeling excused about what language Jesus spoke. Because God speaks in all languages and offers to all peoples here in Acts 2 the mighty works of God. 
He is offering to all peoples this reality that the gospel and the work of, of Pentecost has been made available to all peoples, of all nations, of all ethnicities, of all languages. Wherever you are this morning, the same power that descended on power on Pentecost, that same individual, the spirit of the living God, is available to come and speak to the, to the powerlessness within our lives. It is a power from outside. You were never wired to live life on your own. Sin displaces God at the control center of your life to shift metaphors. The engine of your life was designed to run on God. He is the fuel. He is the power source. It is a power that impacts the inside. God's spirit is willing to bring you under his influence and control, offering joy, peace, and a capacity to live a life that is not curved inward, but can be mercifully allowed to, to curve outward towards others, where it isn't all about us. It isn't, and we're still going to be struggling. We still have the flesh, but there is there is a curving outward that comes from the power outside coming within. And it is a power without sides to anyone. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, the gospel speaks in your language. To you. For you. That same power is available to you today. God, we look to you. If we're honest in ourselves, we can look over the last week and see the desperate of our need for power from without. Lord, my heart goes particularly this morning to people online or in this room to whom the gospel has not been personally embraced. We've not experienced the, the influence, the power of the Spirit of God in their lives because they've not yet embraced Christ as Lord and Savior. Lord, speak into their lives. Draw them. Speak in the language they understand, Lord. Be your creative self to draw them to you. In Jesus' name, amen.